there are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning, here are our top stories. Gaza's biggest hospital blocked from receiving an IDF field drop by Hamas, and Israel steps up efforts to evacuate infants and other patients from the terrorist hotspot. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. doesn't know whether the Americans being held hostage in Gaza are still alive. Meanwhile, President Biden speaks with Qatar's leader about getting them free. The U.S. made two more airstrikes on Iranian targets in Syria. What was behind the airstrikes and who was targeted? Senator Tim Scott calls it quits, saying he's shutting down his presidential campaign. We have more on what led to his decision. In the face of a possible government shutdown this Friday, House Republicans have released a two-part plan, but not everyone is on board. Jewish alumni of Harvard agreed to withhold donations unless the university moves to tackle the rise in anti-Semitic attacks. Find out what implications this could have for Harvard. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome to me as well. Today is Monday, November 13th. And as you can see, we have big news to break because we have a new home. So welcome to our new grand studio. And I hope, of course, everyone had a great weekend. Yes, it's so nice to be here. And, and you know, the WHO says that the Al Shifa Hospital is no longer functioning. That's right. We have big news going on as well. And hopefully Hamas will let through all the fuel supplies. Yes, especially for those infants who are there who are at risk. Well, exactly, and that brings us to um, our top news today. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says an IDF field drop to Gaza's largest hospital was blocked by Hamas yesterday. A 300-liter fuel delivery was coordinated with Al-Shifa hospital staff after urgent requests. Israel's military says Hamas threatened the staff and that the fuel remains untouched. The IDF on X asked why Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry would stop the transfer if they've been warning of hospitals running out of fuel for weeks. It released evidence of Hamas command centers under and around Shifa Hospital, but the IDF said yesterday the hospital is not under siege, with the east side still open. Israel's military has been trying to get everyone to leave northern Gaza so it can safely carry out operations. It says it's doing everything possible to mitigate harm to civilians and increase humanitarian aid. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the situation at Al Shifa. 
Israel's ground forces advanced in northern Gaza Sunday as fighting around the Strip Central Hospital Al-Shifa continued. The IDF says soldiers risked their lives to deliver 300 liters of fuel to the hospital's doorstep. Night vision video of the drop was released, along with aerial footage. Israel is offering enough fuel to operate the hospital, saying it's wars against Hamas, not patients and civilians. The military is urging staff and patients to evacuate after releasing evidence of surrounding Hamas bases underground. Israel says doctors, patients, and those taking refuge must leave, so it can take out the terrorist command center. Further plans were laid Sunday to get the innocent out. We will help the babies in the pediatric department to get to a safer hospital. An Israeli official clarified the IDF's position in Arabic, saying although there were clashes breaking out nearby, there was no shooting or siege at Al-Shifa. The east side of the hospital remains open. Awada Street is open. Even now, anyone can leave if they want to. IDF released a recorded phone call of an officer and a Gaza health official who says the Gaza deputy health minister refused to allow the fuel transfer to take place. Officials from the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry say electricity and supplies at hospitals are running out. Israel released phone calls between a senior liaison officer and staff at hospitals across northern Gaza detailing safe evacuation instructions and routes. Daily tactical pauses and military activities are being carried out to allow safe corridors to open. Israel says over 14,000 tons of humanitarian aid on over 900 trucks have crossed into Gaza since the war began. It posted on X, there is no limit to the amount of food, water, and medical equipment that can enter Gaza, and offered to facilitate more aid sent by the international community. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Israeli Defense Minister warned Lebanese terrorist group Hezbollah not to escalate fighting along the border. He told Israeli troops, quote, Hezbollah is dragging Lebanon into a war that might happen, and what we are doing in Gaza, we can do in Beirut. Hezbollah said on Saturday that its armed group had used new types of weapons and struck new targets in Israel in recent days. The head of Hezbollah pledged that the front in the south against what he called a sworn enemy would remain active. In retaliation to the recent attacks that wounded five soldiers, Israel launched aerial attacks striking Hezbollah targets. Israel released a video showing aerial and artillery strikes. It says targeted several Hezbollah positions inside Lebanese territory. And now we'll look at the hostage situation in Gaza. President Joe Biden spoke on Sunday with Qatar's leader about urgent ongoing, urgent, I should say, ongoing efforts to secure their release from the Hamas terrorist group. One of the American hostages is a three-year-old toddler. And today's Daniel Monahan has the latest on those being held prisoner in the war-ravaged territory. Biden expressed his appreciation to Qatar and Sheikh Tamim for his earlier efforts to secure the release of hostages, including two Americans. The president unequivocally condemned the holding of hostages by Hamas, including many young children. The White House issued a statement saying, the two leaders agreed that all hostages must be released without further delay. Biden's national security advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday that active intense negotiations were underway involving Israel, Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S. on the release of more hostages. And the goal here is to do what is necessary at the negotiating table to ensure that we get the safe return of all of the hostages. Sullivan says nine Americans and one green card holder are currently missing. We don't know the status, uh, whether they are alive or whether they have passed away. The security advisor added that he'll be meeting with family members of the hostages this week. 
In Tel Aviv, hundreds gathered on Sunday to call for the release of the more than 200 hostages being held in Gaza. Several people gave speeches on stage and some played songs to show solidarity. I came to support all the women of the world and to get these hostages out of the Gaza Strip. On Saturday, families and friends of hostages and supporters assembled outside of Israel's defense ministry. Protesters were yelling now in Hebrew, calling for action. Supporter Shiri Grossbard criticized Gaza for not providing any information on the women, children and babies being held prisoner. Not one person from the Red Cross has been allowed to visit with them and let us know um, that they're okay and give us a, a sign of life from any of them. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the pressure the IDF is putting on Hamas could improve the chances of a hostage deal, speaking on NBC's Meet the Press. Listen, I can say that we weren't close at all until we started the ground operation. The Prime Minister says it's best for Israel to keep its cards close on the sensitive matter. But I think the less I say about it, the more I'll increase the chances that it materializes. Netanyahu met with a delegation of U.S. lawmakers on Sunday in Tel Aviv. He was presented with two U.S. resolutions vowing support for Israel. Senator Jerry Moran. The United States Senate, uh, without a single vote in opposition, something that happens rarely uh, in support of Israel and Israel generally and Israel in its current circumstances. Well, thank you. The prime minister says a broad segment of the American people understand that Israel is in a battle of civilization against barbarism. Israel stands at that front line. But it's fighting not only for itself, but fighting also for America, for the free world, and for the, the hope of progress. Mm -hmm. Netanyahu thanked the delegation and added that the only thing greater than standing with Israel is standing in Israel. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. U.S. forces conducted precision strikes in Syria yesterday at facilities used by Iranian proxies. The strikes were in response to repeated attacks against American personnel in Iraq and Syria. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said the strikes targeted a training facility and a safe house in eastern Syria. The strike is the third since last, late October. The U.S. is working to suppress wave after wave of drone and rocket attacks against American troops in Syria and Iraq. Austin said in a statement, quote, the president has no higher priority than the safety of U.S. personnel. He said President Biden directed Sunday's action to make clear that the U.S. would defend itself, its personnel and its interests. Five U.S. Special Operations troops were killed when their helicopter crashed into the Mediterranean Sea. U U.S. European Command says the aircraft crashed during a routine air refueling mission as part of military training. Officials don't believe any hostile activity was behind the Friday incident. An investigation of the crash is underway. President Biden issued a statement saying the entire nation shares the grief of the service members' families and friends. The United States has deployed two aircraft carriers along with supporting ships and dozens of aircraft to the eastern Mediterranean since the October 7th Hamas terror attack. The move is described as a deterrent to ensure the conflict does not expand. Congress has until Friday to pass a spending plan to avert a government shutdown. House Republicans are working on a two-part plan, but it's not a long-term solution, and it faces an uphill battle among some Republicans and possibly Democrats. Here's a breakdown on the proposed plans. Time is running out for Congress to pass a funding bill and avoid a government shutdown. 
Nobody wants a government shutdown. Lawmakers have until midnight Friday before many government operations will be forced to halt. A plan must first pass the House and then the Senate. I'm not exactly sure how he's going to play this, but he's not off to a great start. On Saturday, Speaker Johnson announced a plan on a GOP conference call. It's split into two parts. The first bill would extend funding until January 19th and would include money for military, veterans affairs, transportation, housing and the energy department. The second part of the bill would extend funding until February 2nd and include money for the rest of the government. But it lacks deep spending cuts many right-wing House members pushed for. We got 1.7 trillion de deficit this year and where uh, under any circumstances can they come to bring themselves to have an offset? Neither bill though includes additional aid for Israel or Ukraine, something many lawmakers want to see. I want to see that get done as expeditiously as possible. I also support aid to Ukraine. If the government shuts down, millions of federal employees won't get paid. The impact across the country could be significant. Not all services will be continued to be provided. So uh, all of those you know, could have a, a bad ripple effect. We'll have more analysis on the effect of a possible government shutdown soon. But coming up, Senator Tim Scott is calling it a wrap and packing up his presidential campaign. We have more about his decision and what led him to make it. Former President Trump is calling for his election trial in Washington to be broadcast on TV. The Department of Justice disagrees. GOP presidential hopeful Chris Christie visited Israel yesterday to view the aftermath of the October 7th Hamas attacks. What did he say about aid to Israel and a ceasefire? New York Mayor Eric Adams says he's working with investigators concerning allegations he interfered on behalf of the Turkish Consulate General. Find out more after this short break. Good to have you back. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is suspending his presidential campaign. Here's the senator discussing why he's stepping down on Fox News yesterday. I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. I don't think they're saying, Trey, no, but I do think they're saying not now. The Super PAC supporting Scott pulled its slate of television ads in October and decided not to make a new investment after last week's third GOP presidential debate. Last month, the Scott campaign said it was going all in on Iowa to try to gain on his primary rivals. Pollster Robert Cahaley told NTD it was highly unlikely Scott would qualify for the next debate. Scott says he has no intention of accepting a vice presidential nomination, reaffirming a position he repeated frequently on the campaign trail. And the fourth Republican presidential debate will be held on December 6th in Alabama. But the screws are tightening on candidates as polling requirements will make it tougher to make the cut. And now for a look at how Robert F. Kennedy Jr. might affect a rematch between Trump and Biden. We're bringing on Lenny McAllister, a political analyst and senior fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation. Thank you for your time today, Lenny. What do we expect to see here now that RFK is polling at about 20% or more nationally? It really depends on what the, the DNC is going to do with those numbers. They have an incumbent president 
And the last thing they want is a challenger to Joe Biden. Let's not forget that when Joe Biden ran the race with a crowded primary field in 2019 going into 2020, he didn't do well until James Clyburn of South Carolina basically told Democrats, we have to get behind Joe Biden. He is our only real legitimate chance at winning the moderate part of America and thus winning the 2020 presidential election. They cannot afford to have any type of challenger to an older President Biden who's had a mixed record. Some good victories and a lot of challenges, including with the economy right now, which was one of the things he was trying to hang his hat on. RFK can be a problem for him, even though RFK kind of appeals to both the Biden voter in some regards and the Trump voter in some regards. Yes, it's kind of split here. But when we look at these swing states, Trump did have what some pollsters were claiming to be a path to 270, having about six of them in his pocket. But then when RFK Jr. was put into the mix, he only had a lead in Georgia and Nevada with no clear favorite overall. Do you see that happening here? Depends on what RFK wants to do. If he wants to run an independent race like a Ross Perot in 1992, that's enough to skim off votes in some of these swing states that could swing the balance back to Joe Biden, which would take the path to 270 away from Donald Trump. Again, it's always those same states. You talk about your Arizonas, your Nevadas, your Pennsylvanias, your Ohios, your Virginias, your North Carolinas, your Floridas. A lot of these swing states, your Iowa's even, your Missouri's, some of these swing states are enough to tip the 270 race one way or another. And an RFK skimming off just enough, it's enough to swing it from one candidate to another. People forget that Hillary Clinton didn't just lose because she was unpopular and it made people vote for Trump. She also lost because Democrats, one, stayed home, and two, decided to vote for Jill Stein. And those votes here and there in some of these close races made a state where you only had a 10,000 point difference go from one candidate to the other. And we know what the MAGA base wants. And then on the other side, we know that some of them just want Trump not to be in office. But why is it that swing voters have a liking to RFK Jr.? because he takes a little bit from the Democrats, he takes a little bit from the Republicans. He talks about the, the issues surrounding COVID and the vaccine and some of the questions that people have around that. He also is one that is a little bit similar to Trump when it comes to how he views international affairs. And it's this weird mix of, of taking from the center left, the center right, but also a little bit of the fringes of the left and the right into this candidate that, by the way, things that people like about Trump, he doesn't need to be paid and sold. He doesn't need to be loved by the establishment and he can run on his own. He has his own name, obviously his own brand, much like Trump did coming into the 2016 race. These are things that make him attractive in a, in a unique kind of way that another third party, fourth party candidate just wouldn't be able to get traction for. You look at Dr. Cornell West, who was also running an independent campaign He's a professor, he's known as a civil rights scholar, but he's not gonna have the same name ID that a Kennedy would. Always great hearing your analysis on this. Lenny McAllister, Senior Fellow with the Commonwealth Foundation, thank you for your time. Thank you, God bless.
Former President Trump is pushing for his federal election trial in Washington to be televised. His lawyers filed papers late Friday saying all Americans should be able to watch the proceedings, calling them a politically motivated prosecution of the current Republican frontrunner. Federal court rules prohibit broadcasting such trials, but many news organizations say the unprecedented case warrants making an exception. The Justice Department opposes the effort. It argues that the judge overseeing the case does not have the authority to ignore the longstanding policy against cameras in federal courtrooms. Trump says the prosecution wants to continue what he called a travesty in darkness, but that he wants it all to be exposed to sunlight. In the former president's civil trial, his lawyers will begin Trump's defense today by calling their witnesses. And GOP presidential hopeful Chris Christie was in Israel over the weekend. He's the first Republican presidential candidate to visit the country since the outbreak of the conflict. Christie toured a kibbutz that was attacked on October 7th by Hamas. He also met with Israeli leaders during his one-day visit. We must remember who's really responsible for this. And we can't ask Israel to stand down if they believe there is still a legitimate violent threat against them and their people. And I think there's no question that there is. And so they must continue to fight until they have degraded that capability to a point where they can say to their people, come back and live here safely and securely. Until that comes, I don't think calls for a ceasefire make any sense and also forget the history of the fact that before October 7th, there was a ceasefire in place and it was Hamas that broke it, not Israel. Christie also mentioned U.S. protests against the conflict but said they are a vast minority of Americans. Christie also said that any assistance the U.S. provides Israel is what friends do for friends and America has no greater friend in the world than Israel. Veteran New York Congressman Brian Higgins says he is stepping down, citing frustration with dysfunction in Congress as the reason. Democrat Brian Higgins said Congress is very different today than when he began there 19 years ago. He said Congress is spending more time doing less and the American people aren't being served. Higgins joins a number of lawmakers who recently announced they would not seek re-election next year. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says he will continue to work with investigators and cooperate. This after the New York Times reported federal authorities are investigating whether Adams pressed city officials to allow the opening of a Manhattan building housing the Turkish Consulate General. NTD could not independently verify the New York Times' report. It alleges that federal investigators are looking into whether Adams pressured New York Fire Department officials to sign off on the Turkish government's new consulate. This despite safety concerns with the building. This allegedly took place weeks before his election two years ago. FBI agents reportedly seized phones and an iPad from the mayor last week as part of an investigation into campaign fundraising. The move is seen as a dramatic escalation of the federal probe into whether foreign money was funneled to his campaign. Adams said through a spokesperson on Sunday that he hasn't been accused of wrongdoing. And coming up, credit rating agency Moody's Investor Service has lowered its outlook on U.S. government debt, dropping it from stable to negative. And controversy over a case involving a religious charter school, there is disagreement over whether they can receive public funding. 
NTD spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom, which represents the school board that approved the school. The son of a famous Hollywood agent was arrested for the murder of his wife. Police are concerned about two others who are still missing. We have the story coming up. Good to have you back. Credit rating agency Moody's lowered its outlook on U.S. government debt. According to the agency, the outlook is now negative, down from stable. So joining us now to discuss this is NTD business host Don Ma in person this time. Hi, Don. Good to have you. Tell us what this means. All right. So first of all, let me explain the difference between the outlook of a credit rating and the credit rating itself. So the U.S. is still maintaining a AAA credit rating from, the, from Moody's. So credit rating just means how likely is it for the U.S. government uh, to meet its uh, obligations, such as debt. Uh, so that's still AAA, so that's good. But the outlook on the credit is now negative, which means potentially in the future, uh, Moody's could consider lowering that AAA to a notch lower to AA plus, perhaps. Uh, so it's negative. If it were positive, for example, let's say, that, that could also mean Moody may be thinking of raising uh, the credit uh, rating. So what Moody cited was uh, political uh, polarization within the United States for this negative outlook. Um, and another thing that uh, Moody's uh, cited was high interest rates. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates and the amount of fiscal debt that the U.S. government now has. So those are some of the reasons. Well, there is at least a little bit of that good news in there with that AAA rating. And we know that it's been downgraded in the past. But what is this going to impact the U.S.? Well, first of all, let me just say that uh, nobody is disputing that the national debt is a problem. Uh, it's, it's very high, uh, around 120% of GDP. And the runway is getting shorter and shorter. Uh, but speaking of credit rating, if, if Moody's does decide to lower the credit rating to AA plus, I mean, personally, I think credit ratings uh, is not as important uh, compared to the national debt, let's say. Because, you know, to be honest, if we were to actually rate the U.S. government uh, correctly, it would be far lower than a AAA rating because of how much debt uh, the U.S. have. Um, but the U.S. government is not a company. Um, it, it is uh, a government with the ability to print money to meet its obligations, financial obligations. It has the Treasury, it has the Federal Reserve. Um, the amount of debt that we have, you know, it, it is a lot, right? But, you know, the Federal Reserve can just lower interest rates. And let's say if interest rates were at zero, I mean, anybody can afford unlimited amounts of debt if the interest rate is zero. Um, so, you know, there are some things that I think do matter, but the credit rating itself, um, I think, uh, doesn't matter as much. I mean, at the end of the day, the bottom line is where else are you going to put your reserves? China? No. Turkey? Uh, so, yeah, the U.S., I mean, is still the only place, you know, to uh, safely put your uh, reserve currency. Mm. Well, thanks for putting that into perspective there. What else do you have for us today? Yeah, sure. Um, so just a couple of news uh, today. Harvard is under fire, it seems like. More than 1,600 Jew Jewish alumni have criticized the university for failing to tackle rising anti-Semitism on campus. Some have pledged to withdraw their donations until the issue is resolved. Um, it all began shortly after the October 7th terrorist attacks. Uh, according to a letter from the alumni, more than 
30 Harvard student groups uh, showed support for the slaughter of Israeli civilians. The Harvard College Jewish uh, Alumni Association sent the letter to the administration on October 30th. So Don, what kind of actions is this alumni group asking for? You know, just, just the usual things, right? Uh, it, it wants uh, these things to not occur as much. Um, and um, while well, they're saying uh, not enough is being done to combat the anti-Semitic hate crimes and that the administration must condemn the terrorist act, uh, the association's co-founder says the group wants Harvard to curb verbal and physical assaults on Jewish students and adopt measures as well to uh, protect Jewish students. So what specific actions are they considering? Um, well, it seems like uh, the group has uh, threatened actually to reduce annual donations to the university to just $1. And, and many who signed the letter are uh, key donors actually to the university. Several major donors announced that they were cutting ties with Harvard and started uh, and stated actually they, they're withdrawing donations completely. And Evelyn, uh, donations are actually critical to Harvard's uh, financial stability. Nearly $6 billion were donated in the 2022 fiscal year. Wow, yeah, seems like some repercussions there they didn't expect. But thank you so much, uh, host of NTD Business, Don Ma. Yep, my pleasure. And a school board in Oklahoma in June approved the first religious charter school in the U.S. to receive public funding. But a lawsuit against the board to prevent its opening soon followed. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom, which represents the school board, about the case. Charter schools are public schools which are publicly funded and operate independently. In June of this year, the Oklahoma Statewide Virtual Charter School Board voted to approve the application of St. Isidore of Seville Virtual Catholic School. A group of plaintiffs called the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee then sued to overturn the board's approval of St. Isidore. The legal firm Alliance Defending Freedom has since filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit and defend the board's decision to allow religious groups to seek public funding for privately operated charter schools. Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Phil Seckler. Yeah, I would say the issue, Daniel, is whether when the state decides to give public funding to privately operated schools, it can treat religious groups as second-class citizens, whether it can discriminate against religious applicants and treat them differently from other private applicants. Seckler says the Supreme Court addressed the matter two years ago in Carson versus Macon. The decision responded to the state of Maine's rule prohibiting tuition aid support for religious schools. There, uh, another program was set up by the state of Maine to provide assistance to parents who wanted educational opportunities. And the state said, but it has to be a non-sectarian school. And the Supreme Court made it clear that you can't treat religious groups like second-class citizens. They have to be treated the same, so that if the state decides to give public funds to privately operated uh, schools, it needs to do so fairly and has to treat religious groups the same. Seckler says the free exercise clause of the U.S. Constitution makes it clear that if a state decides to open up an educational opportunity to private groups, it can't tell religious groups not to apply. It has to treat them the same way. It can make many choices, but once it decides to make that an opportunity to private groups, it can't treat religious groups as second-class citizens. 
The Free Exercise Clause protects the right of citizens to practice their religion as they please, so long as the practice does not run afoul of public morals or a compelling governmental interest. Seckler believes St. Isidore would offer a valuable Catholic education option for parents in remote areas of Oklahoma where no nearby Catholic schools are available due to how spread out the state is. That the board, you know, when it made its decision to approve St. Isidore, uh, decided it was going to treat St. Isidore just like it would treat any other applicant. It was not going to discriminate against the school because it's Catholic. And that decision just adds to the choices that Oklahomans have available. One of the plaintiffs in the case is Reverend Lori Walker. Walker told an Oklahoma newspaper, quote, You can't use people's tax dollars to promote or establish religion. NTD reached out to Walker and the Oklahoma Parent Legislative Action Committee who brought the lawsuit. We are still waiting to hear back from them. St. Isidore plans to open in the fall of 2024. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up next, Saudi Arabia hosted a summit this weekend to call for end to call for end to the Israel-Hamas war. Leaders from major Middle Eastern countries were in attendance. We're bringing in an expert to give us the details. Thousands of protesters converged on San Francisco to protest the week-long Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperative. What are they protesting, and was the event peaceful? Find out coming up. Welcome back. Hamas is demanding more action from Arab and Muslim countries over Israel's military operation in Gaza. Hamas Representative Osama Hamdan spoke at a briefing in the Lebanese capital Beirut yesterday following a joint Islamic Arab summit in Riyadh. Hamdan said at the briefing that he welcomed the words of the leaders who attended, but that the summit had not yet yielded the desired results. Saudi Arabia is looking to put pressure on the U.S. and Israel for an end to hostilities in Gaza. Saudi Arabia's ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, gathered Arab and Muslim leaders to reinforce that message. Hamdan also urged the International Criminal Court to investigate what he referred to as war crimes and crimes against humanity by Israel. Two major hospitals in northern Gaza reportedly closed to new patients yesterday, to which Hamdan referred to as a massacre on Palestinians. So, as mentioned, Arab and Muslim leaders held an emergency meeting over the weekend demanding an immediate end to the Israel and Hamas war. Also part of that meeting was Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi, who visited for the first time in 11 years. So to hear more about this, we bring in Antonio Graceffo. He's an economic and national security analyst. He's also the author of Beyond the Belt and Road. Good morning, Antonio. It's really good to see you again. So this summit brought together 57 leaders from the Arab and Muslim world together. So what was the goal here of this meeting and what and what was the outcome? Well, it's uh, very historic in that uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia were in the same same room together. That hasn't happened in a very long time. And um, the outcome was that they uh, more or less universally condemned Israel and by extrapolation the United States. And they'll be calling on the U.N. Security Council to uh, intervene in this situation. So, like you just mentioned, it was notable that Raisi was there, Iran's president. He traveled to Riyadh for the first time in 11 years, like just mentioned. So, what does it say about the development there in their relationship? Yeah, this is um, 
Uh, possibly the result of a Chinese brokered deal. Uh, China brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and it was a step by China to try and counteract the Abraham Accords. So uh, we see that that alliance or, or, or that ceasefire, let's say, is holding between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So what is the significance of that relationship on an international st uh, stage as well, and of course the war? So number one, it, uh, it sort of shows that China, or it, it promotes China as a peacemaker, that China successfully brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. China will now be touting that, that China is the great peacemaker. Uh, it was also a counter to the Abraham Accords, which the U.S. had negotiated. And at the meeting, uh, they also called for, at least Iran called for, all nations that have normalized relations with, uh, with Israel to break those relations. So this would definitely be a huge setback to the Abraham Accords and a tremendous setback to any uh, U.S. Uh, influence in the region. Right. And, and to what Raizi said during that uh, summit, he said, we kiss the hand of Hamas. I'm wondering how representative would this be for the other nations that were present as well? How representative is this kind of view? Well, several of the nations did take such a uh, supportive view of Hamas. And remember that uh, Qatar actually hosts uh, Hamas offices in Qatar. Um, the Hamas leaders are able to operate out of Qatar, and Qatar has now volunteered to uh, negotiate uh, the release of the hostages. So Qatar is definitely pro-Hamas. Iran is definitely pro-Hamas. Some of the other uh, countries have made similar statements. So it does seem that most, if not all, uh, are supporting Hamas. So considering also that the UAE is there, Qatar was there, so what kind of pressure does this summit actually put on the U.S.? What, how much leverage do they have? This really puts the U.S. in, in a bad situation because uh, there's basically a coalition building among all of the uh, Middle Eastern leaders, the Muslim and Arab leaders. And uh, as they isolate Israel, this also means they're isolating the United States. So this puts U.S. foreign policy in the region uh, under a test. Hmm. So on that note, I, uh, just last quickly before we go, the Deputy General of, Arab, of the Arab League actually reportedly said in an interview that Russia and China understand the region better than the West does. Now, what kind of relationship, like you also just mentioned, China is a big peace broker there. What kind of relationship do you see developing there? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, China continues to support Iran. Iran continues to support Hezbollah and Hamas and the Houthi. Uh, uh, rebels, and then these groups are attacking Israel and they're attacking U.S. interests. Um, China and Russia are presenting themselves as the uh, anti-colonial alternative to the U.S. and the West. So this is a tremendous gain in the direction of uh, uh, China and Russia and a loss for the United States and Western allies and Israel. Hmm. Thank you so much, Antonio Graceffo, for, uh, for your time today and for your insights, of course. Thank you. And President Biden and Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping are set to meet this week on Wednesday at the APEC summit in San Francisco. And today caught up with Congressman Mike Gallagher at the event to ask him how the Chinese regime's suppression of U.S.-based Shen Yun performing arts in South Korea. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on his response. 
We still didn't. Congressman Mike Gallagher, chairman of the House Select Committee on the CCP, told NTD that China's actions in South Korea is just one example of the regime's economic warfare. I think this is all evidence of a global strategy of economic coercion, uh, which is why we need to push back in concert with our allies. I actually think our ambassador to Japan, Ambassador Emmanuel, has done a fantastic job calling out incidents of coercion and calling on the administration in partnership with Congress uh, to push back against Chinese economic coercion. But Gallagher says the most important thing is reducing China's source of leverage for coercion in the first place. The fact is we've become too dependent on China in a variety of areas, whether it's um, critical mineral processing or advanced pharmaceutical ingredients. We're going to have to figure out a way to reclaim our, reclaim our economic independence before it's too late. Because imagine if we found ourselves in a kinetic confrontation with China over Taiwan, they would weaponize supply chains, they would weaponize those points of leverage to bring us and our allies to our knees. And so we have to take action before it's too late, before the shooting starts. The congressman says one of the U.S.'s greatest strengths lies in its network of allies, but that to be victorious in competition against China long term, outdated regulations must be reformed to break down walls in the way of collaboration. He's worried high-level talks might be leaving out human rights. Just as in past competitions with existential threats like the Soviet Union, we used human rights to advance our strategic in, uh, uh, interests. We have to do the same right now. We have to put them at the forefront of our, our grand strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. And we can't, um, we can't ignore the atrocities uh, that the CCP is perpetrating, whether it's in Xinjiang, whether it's in Hong Kong, whether it's just the Chinese people uh, who are, are victims of the, the authoritarianism and the techno-totalitarianism of the regime in Beijing. Gallagher says the U.S. has delayed key defense actions in order to send high-level cabinet officials to Beijing and set up the APEC meeting between Biden and Xi. Over the last few years, we haven't sanctioned a single Chinese official for the genocide in Xinjiang. We haven't sanctioned anyone for the suppression of freedom in Hong Kong. There's been no meaningful investigation into the origins of COVID. Uh, the attempt to play down the spy balloon incident was a joke, all in pursuit of this engagement. And so I think it's dangerous. I think it's naive. And paradoxically, it's going to make the Chinese Communist Party more aggressive because these Marxist-Leninist regimes tend to get more aggressive the more you appease and accommodate them. Gallagher's message to the business community is, it's time to take off the golden blindfolds. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Crowds of demonstrators gathered in San Francisco yesterday to protest a wide range of issues, and many called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. San Francisco police expect multiple protests during the coming week at the APEC Forum. Here's the story. San Francisco is hosting the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, with leaders from many countries attending. The event drew protesters for a variety of issues. Environmental concerns were one topic. We need to really work on our solution to the climate emergency, the climate crisis. We are so far getting an F. I'm here to grade our response so far, and I hope we can work it up to a D, C, B, and an A, but so far, uh, we are failing to address this emergency. The money spent to entertain the political leaders attending the forum also came into question. Presidents of 21 countries, leaders are here precisely in San Francisco. They're going to be here until the 19th of November, and they are spending a lot of money to receive them and treat them like kings. It is said that they have already asked for more than $20 million to receive them and treat them in the best possible way, while our community is in chaos. We see the people here. 
There are many homeless people who don't have houses, others don't have jobs. Demonstrations against the Israel-Hamas conflict have their fair share of protesters too. It needs to stop. We're here to, you know, try to make a change, put in our efforts, speak up, you know, just do what we can, honestly, to help our people back home in Gaza. While protesters have different causes and points of view, some emphasize the need to set those differences aside. You know, I'm not sure that all of us have, like, the same political views on everything, but I do think it's important for people to kind of get over their differences and come together over specific issues, and I do think that APEC is a very specific issue. The protests have been peaceful and are likely to continue throughout the week until the forum ends on Friday. Coming up after the break, French lawmakers took to the streets of Paris yesterday to condemn a surge of anti-Semitism in the country. Hundreds of earthquakes over the weekend forced thousands to evacuate a town in Iceland. Authorities are predicting another likely even more serious natural disaster. Hear the explosive story when we come back. Thank you for staying with us. Now we're heading over to France, where thousands marched in Paris yesterday to condemn a surge in anti-Semitic acts. The leaders of France's two houses of parliament organized the march, and they were joined by several prominent political figures. NTD's Cost Temenes tells us more. According to estimates, more than 100,000 people joined in the march. We have come as a family to march and show the world that we mustn't stigmatize anyone in French society or anywhere else in the world, and that we mustn't import conflicts that are happening elsewhere into our country. Political figures led the march, including Prime Minister Elizabeth Borne and former presidents François Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy. They held a banner with the slogan, For the Republic Against Antisemitism. They led several renditions of the French national anthem. Several other political leaders from both sides of the political spectrum also joined in the march, including former presidential candidate Marine Le Pen. I think it's a good thing. We're not here to play politics. We're here for a demonstration, for a good cause, and for and against anti-Semitism. We're not here to play politics. President Emmanuel Macron decided not to attend but published an open letter supporting the march. His absence drew criticism from some politicians. Macron recently opposed Israel's bombing of Gaza and called for a ceasefire, which was rebuked by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Around 80,000 people joined protests against anti-Semitism in other parts of the country. Tensions have been rising in France, particularly in the capital, over the Israel-Hamas war, resulting in a surge in anti-Semitic incidents. Costa Menes, NTD News. And thousands of residents were evacuated Saturday from a southwestern fishing town in Iceland. The evacuation comes after Iceland declared a state of emergency following an intense wave of earthquakes linked to a possible volcanic eruption. A government agency recorded nearly 800 quakes on Friday. It declared a significant risk of an eruption on or near the Reykjanes Peninsula. An aviation alert is also in place. Eruptions can cause dangerous conditions because of ash spewing into the air. It can affect visibility and cause problems with jet engines and flight control systems. 
According to ABC News, <clears throat> excuse me, a 2010 eruption caused the cancellation of more than 100,000 flights between Europe and North America, which cost airlines around $3 billion in revenue. Well, the officials did say that the evacuations were successful. So. Ah, that is good news because, I mean, you see those pictures of the cracks in the roads and even golf courses have like whole sections caving into the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad they were able to get their pets, their belongings. I just hope everybody stays safe now. Yes. Yeah, and the second part of our broadcast starts now. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. Yeah, so there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Good morning from me as well. Here are our top stories. Is there a shift in messaging by the Biden administration on the Israel-Hamas war? A former official for international affairs weighs in on the top U.S. diplomats' concern over civilian deaths in Gaza. And efforts to free hostages held in Gaza are ongoing. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu says IDF pressure on Hamas could improve the chances of a deal. Senator Tim Scott is throwing in the towel Suspending his presidential campaign, we have more on what led to his decision. And we bring you to Nolita, a quaint, artsy neighborhood in Manhattan. Prepare for some hand-baked pastries and wood-fired pizza, all in a friendly, nurturing community. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Today is Monday, November 13th, so we're kicking off a new week with the new studios. But let's head to our top news now. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says an IDF field drop to Gaza's largest hospital was blocked by Hamas yesterday. A 300-liter fuel delivery was coordinated with Al-Shifa hospital staff after urgent requests. Israel's military says Hamas threatened the staff and that the fuel remains untouched. The IDF on X asked why Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry would stop the transfer if they've been warning of hospitals running out of fuel for weeks. It released evidence of Hamas command centers under and around Shifa Hospital, but the IDF said yesterday the hospital is not under siege, with the east side still open. Israel's military has been trying to get everyone to leave northern Gaza so it can safely carry out operations. It says it's doing everything possible to mitigate harm to civilians and increase humanitarian aid. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the situation at Al-Shifa. 
Israel's ground forces advanced in northern Gaza Sunday as fighting around the Strip's central hospital Al-Shifa continued. The IDF says soldiers risked their lives to deliver 300 liters of fuel to the hospital's doorstep. Night vision video of the drop was released, along with aerial footage. Israel is offering enough fuel to operate the hospital, saying it's wars against Hamas, not patients and civilians. The military is urging staff and patients to evacuate after releasing evidence of surrounding Hamas bases underground. Israel says doctors, patients, and those taking refuge must leave, so it can take out the terrorist command center. Further plans were laid Sunday to get the innocent out. We will help the babies in the pediatric department to get to a safer hospital. An Israeli official clarified the IDF's position in Arabic, saying although there were clashes breaking out nearby, there was no shooting or siege at Al-Shifa. The east side of the hospital remains open. Awada Street is open. Even now, anyone can leave if they want to. IDF released a recorded phone call of an officer and a Gaza health official who says the Gaza deputy health minister refused to allow the fuel transfer to take place. Officials from the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry say electricity and supplies at hospitals are running out. Israel released phone calls between a senior liaison officer and staff at hospitals across northern Gaza detailing safe evacuation instructions and routes. Daily tactical pauses and military activities are being carried out to allow safe corridors to open. Israel says over 14,000 tons of humanitarian aid on over 900 trucks have crossed into Gaza since the war began. It posted on X, there is no limit to the amount of food, water, and medical equipment that can enter Gaza, and offered to facilitate more aid sent by the international community. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Next, we analyze the supposed shift in messaging on the Israel-Hamas war by the Biden administration and how the war will affect his voter brace. Please welcome Bart Marcois, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Affairs. Bart, thank you for your time this morning. We saw that Blinken, State Secretary Blinken, lamented the civilian death toll while he was in India. Now, the Biden administration from the start, including Blinken and NSC spokesman Kirby, have been calling for protection of innocent Gazans. Do you think that Blinken's comments in New Delhi mark a shift in the messaging? Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Evelyn. Uh, it is a slight shift, and it's a shift aimed at a domestic political audience. Anytime you evaluate Antony Blinken's comments, you have to understand how he became Secretary of State. He is first and foremost a domestic political actor. He became Secretary of State by uh, marshalling a lot of foreign affairs people to sign a letter claiming that the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation. And he was rewarded for that act of political loyalty by giving him the most important foreign affairs job. The, our, our, his counterparts overseas are very sophisticated people and they understand our domestic political tensions. The answer to your question was contained in the latter part of the question. The Biden administration is concerned about losing the votes of Arab Americans, Muslim Americans from their coalition that they've put together that includes Arab, Muslim and Jewish Americans. And they're trying to balance that. That's what that shift in tone was about. Right. And do you expect that their messaging could cost them support from voters who are sympathetic to Palestinians? Yes, yes, the uh, the every major um, Palestinian, Arab American and Muslim American uh, uh, organization and and politician has made that clear. 
they've made threats that they will vote in 2024 for the lower ticket, but they will leave the ballots blank for the presidential uh, choice. Uh, it's hard for the Democrats to win Michigan without Arab American votes. Arab American votes are very important in several other states as well. Yeah, that's going to play in big in the swing states here. Now, a senior U.S. official told CNN that they are working towards a deal to get hostages out, but this could involve a days-long pause in the war fighting. So do you think that the U.S. has pressured Israel quite a bit here on this type of humanitarian assistance and these pauses? So do you think that that's going to affect their voter base and how they perceive this? I think that they will continue to pressure Israel I, I doubt that Israel will accede to a days-long pause. The Israelis have been instituting daily four-hour and sometimes longer pauses, humanitarian pauses for people to move. They've even escorted people, tens of thousands of people from northern Gaza to southern Gaza to avoid Hamas sniper fire. I don't think that the president's domestic uh, political base will be satisfied with anything but a ceasefire. So, Bart, last question here. Does the U.S. have clarity as a whole, all the officials on board, with exactly what it expects from Israel right now? I don't think so. I don't think so. There's, a, there's an innate sympathy for the victim of a terrorist attack. The the, those who understand foreign affairs and really understand the history of the region understand that what Israel is doing right now, the, this war in Gaza, is not a retaliation for October 7th. It is not a revenge attack. It is, they're saying, Israel is saying, you know what? We cannot take any chances on being attacked like this again. We must eradicate Hamas. That's all there is to it. And we will do everything we can until Hamas is gone. And I, I just don't see any, um, any way around it. The, the people inside the administration recognize that, but they also want to placate public opinion when the Gaza Ministry of Health puts out figures that claim high civilian death tolls. We don't really know what the death tolls are. They might be that high, they probably are not based on past experience with the Gaza uh, government. Well, thank you for bringing important insight into this. Bart Marquois, former Deputy Assistant, Assistant Secretary for International Affairs, thank you. Thank you. And now we'll take a look at the hostage situation in Gaza. President Joe Biden spoke on Sunday with Qatar's leader about urgent, urgent ongoing efforts to secure their release from the Hamas terrorist group. One of the American hostages is a three-year-old toddler. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has the latest on those being held prisoner in the war-ravaged territory. Biden expressed his appreciation to Qatar and Sheikh Tamim for his earlier efforts to secure the release of hostages, including two Americans. The president unequivocally condemned the holding of hostages by Hamas, including many young children. The White House issued a statement saying, the two leaders agreed that all hostages must be released without further delay. Biden's national security advisor Jake Sullivan said Sunday that active intense negotiations were underway 
involving Israel, Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S. on the release of more hostages. And the goal here is to do what is necessary at the negotiating table to ensure that we get the safe return of all of the hostages. Sullivan says nine Americans and one green card holder are currently missing. We don't know the status, uh, whether they are alive or whether they have passed away. The security advisor added that he'll be meeting with family members of the hostages this week. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the pressure the IDF is putting on Hamas could improve the chances of a hostage deal, speaking on NBC's Meet the Press. Listen, I can say that we weren't close at all until we started the ground operation. The Prime Minister says it's best for Israel to keep its cards close on the sensitive matter. But I think the less I say about it, the more I'll increase the chances that it materializes. Netanyahu met with a delegation of U.S. lawmakers on Sunday in Tel Aviv. He was presented with two U.S. resolutions vowing support for Israel. Senator Jerry Moran. The United States Senate, uh, without a single vote in opposition, something that happens rarely uh, in support of Israel and Israel generally and Israel in its current circumstances. Well, thank you. The prime minister says a broad segment of the American people understand that Israel is in a battle of civilization against barbarism. Israel stands at that front line. But it's fighting not only for itself, but fighting also for America, for the free world, and for the, the hope of progress. Mm -hmm. Netanyahu thanked the delegation and added that the only thing greater than standing with Israel is standing in Israel. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, Senator Tim Scott wraps up his presidential campaign. We have more about his decision and what comes next. In cases of anti-Semitism on the rise, New York Governor Kathy Hochul wants to increase her state's response to reported incidents. A food tour in an artsy neighborhood in New York City. Prepare for some hand-baked pastries and wood-fired pizza, all in a friendly, nurturing community. That's after the break. Good to have you back. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is suspending his presidential campaign. Here's the senator discussing why he's stepping down on Fox News yesterday. I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. I don't think they're saying, Trey, no, but I do think they're saying not now. The super PAC supporting Scott pulled its slate of television ads in October and decided not to make a new investment after last week's third GOP presidential debate. Uh, last month, the Scott campaign said it was going all in on Iowa to try to gain on his primary rivals. Pollster Robert Cahaley told NTD it was highly unlikely Scott would qualify for the next debate. Scott says he has no intention of accepting a vice presidential nomination, reaffirming his position he repeated frequently on the campaign trail. And New York Governor Kathy Hochul wants to beef up the state's response to increased reports of anti-Semitism. During remarks to the American Jewish Committee Board of Governors on Sunday, Hochul said she's called a meeting to address the issue. I'm convening a meeting. Of all the top law enforcement individuals, their agencies, <coughs> federal, state, local, 
New York City Police. MTA runs our subways, the transit police. State police and everyone are gathering in my office because I said I want to see you Monday morning. I want to know what you're doing. Are you doing everything you humanly can? Is there more that can and should be done? Hochul says that anti-Semitic reports and complaints were up over 200% in the state last month alone. She says everyone has a right to feel safe in their community. All right, we're going to go right into some quick headlines for you. L.A. police arrested the son of a Hollywood executive for the murder and dismemberment of his wife. Samuel Haskell is currently being held on a $2 million bail and is expected to appear in court today. The body of his wife was discovered, but he also shared a residence with her parents, who are currently missing. Haskell is a son of Samuel Haskell Sr., a former executive at William Morris Agency, where he represented celebrities like George Clooney, Dolly Parton, and others. Pope Francis, in a rare move, personally removed Texas Bishop Joseph Strickland from his position. He was asked to resign last week, but refused. Strickland, a frequent user of social media, was particularly critical of the Pope's attempt to make the church more welcoming to the LGBT community. Strickland was the subject of a June 2023 internal investigation by the church. The results were never released to the public. And if you plan to leave home Thanksgiving weekend, brace yourself. Oof, yeah, a triple A forecast uh, out today predicts this Thanksgiving will be the third busiest on record for travelers. It estimates over 55 million people will venture 50 or more miles from home and travelers could face more challenges than just congestion. A possible government shutdown this coming weekend could have a broader impact. The White House is warning airline passengers of possible long wait times and delays. The U.S. already has a shortage of air traffic controllers. The head of the National Air Traffic Controller Association says a shutdown could make that problem worse. And moving on to winter news, an Alaskan outdoor rescue instructor showed off a rare ice window. He says the once-in-a-decade ice window was formed from an unusually cold but dry transition into winter. Ice rescue instructor Luke Mail said the ice is so clear because of the late lake bottom does not have any vegetation or soil. Car-sized boulders were visible three to four meters below to ice skaters. Mail says he's never seen anything like it in the last 12 years. He has been skating there. He said it will probably be another 10 years before it happens again. Wow, look at that, crystal clear. Yeah. And New York City, moving on to New York City, I have to say I love it so much because it has so much to offer. There is never a dull moment. Oh, I know. It is really great in a lot of different neighborhoods. And the city's famous for its pizza. And it's no surprise that it had over 30 million tourists in 2021 with all its icons and unique neighborhoods. Yeah, so speaking of neighborhoods, if you're thinking about paying a visit to the Big Apple, you might want to check out this one that Kevin explored. I'm here in Lower Manhattan's neighborhood, Nolita, which is north of Little Italy. It's the food and the vibes that attract people from all over to come to visit. And we're going to stop at Cafe Bell for some dessert to start. But first, we're going to hear from Bert James, a tour guide at Foods of New York, to find out a little bit more about what we can expect today. Nolita is everything old is new, everything new is old. This younger generation finding their voice in an older neighborhood. It's the main vibe of the tour today. So we're going to do, we're going to start with, a, with an Italian rainbow cake. 
called a rainbow cookie, but it is technically a cake. We're going to do a Mexican corn esquites, and we're going to pair that with some freshly squeezed watermelon juice. We're going to have a homemade pizza that's made in front of us, in front of this beautiful wood-fired oven. We're going to pair that with a really tasty Italian red wine. 70 years of experience making authentic, hand-baked Italian pastries, culminating in the joy dished out by this rainbow cake. It was really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all made right here, using Grandpa's recipe. They're tangy and chocolatey all in one. I recommend. Nolita's cozy cafes and stylish boutiques have a hustle and bustle undertone. It's pretty busy. <laughs> it's like everywhere else in New York. It's very busy. The neighborhood offers plenty of opportunities for people watching, shopping, and quaint attractions. So our next stop is an old car garage that's been converted into a Mexican restaurant. Talk about Nolita. At Tacombi, which advances the Mexican community through food accessibility and employment, these tourists sample sandia, Spanish for watermelon juice. Absolutely wonderful. And don't forget the cotija cheese. Pair that with a good feeling knowing that this establishment's community kitchen launched a food relief program during the pandemic and continues to battle food insecurity. What are the vibes that you're getting around here? Uh, pretty cool vibes. The, the city's kind of historic, so I'm kind of digging it. It's very Instagram-like around here. Every corner, every restaurant, it, it looks like you've stepped into an Instagram account. It's very trendy, and the food's great. Nolita has roots as an immigrant community. Around the beginning of the 20th century, it was populated by newcomers from Italy who took residence in the tenement buildings common to this area. Now to Emporio, because it's time for some Italian vino and margarita pizza, which is... Absolutely <laughs> fabulous. It's really, really, really good, yeah. It's wood-fired pizza with San Marzano tomatoes, fresh mozzarella and basil, a taste of Nolita. I, the food is fantastic, but learning the history of the neighborhoods is just incredible. You know, you walk down a street, you don't know all these other things exist. Aside from its delicious food, don't forget dessert, and its rich heritage, Nolita is also said to be one of the safest areas in New York City. But that's not all. I don't know, it's kind of artsy. I like the greenery, I like the brick buildings, the history here, it seems really great. Emporio's been around for about 15 years, and they say they get the regular customers from the neighborhood, which they say is quiet and friendly. So if you ever want to visit New York City, Nolita is waiting for you. That's awesome. Thank you. It's so good to find out all these things about um, about the city we've been living in. Yeah, I had fun touring Nolita. And you know about those hand-baked pastries. I make my own cookies sometimes. Awesome. Maybe I'll try one someday. So, all right, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. So stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.